When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 212. Today's episode is all about how to calm an angry or upset person in 90 seconds or less. The more you practice this, the more emotionally competent you become, and the more you understand what emotions are and the emotional experiences that you have and other people have, and it gives you space for compassion. It becomes a spiritual practice because when you're affect labeling somebody, you're listening to and reflecting their emotions, you don't have any room for your own ego and it goes away. You become egoless. You become one. It's what Eckhart Tolle calls the power of now. And you're in that moment for about 20 seconds or 30 seconds with the person who's really upset. And it's a transcendence feeling of oneness. And that's where your real compassion starts to come through. Turn up your frequency with mind love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, love. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are really a great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even more amazing guests for you. Today, I'd like to share a review from Nikki Silipino, who says, I love this podcast. I'm always searching for a good mindfulness podcast, and I finally found one I can stick with. I look forward to listening to this podcast during all my runs. Thank you for all of your mindfulness tips. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Nikki, for leaving this review. It really means a lot to me. And now let's get to the show. Just being in the presence of someone that's highly emotional or angry especially can be very stressful. If you're anything like me, sometimes it just feels easier to avoid someone rather than deal with their emotions. Historically, I would sooner move cities than deal with confrontation. I can see now that my instinct to run was a protection mechanism. As an empath, I feel people's emotions as if they were my own. So being around emotional people has always felt kind of turbulent, like I was being taken on a ride that I never really asked to get on. But even if you aren't an empath, other people's big emotions can be just as stressful and turbulent. When someone comes at you with anger or accusations, often the first reaction is defensiveness. When I feel attacked, my impulse is to attack back. Why are you coming at me for this? It's not my fault that you, you're the one who, I can't believe you'd say this to me after I did this for you. You're always blaming me for your issues. You get the gist. The problem is you can't avoid or cut out everyone who gets emotional with you. I mean, you can, but you'd probably be pretty lonely. It's one thing if someone consistently treats you badly or sucks you into their drama. At some point, you have to ask yourself if the relationship is worth the hurt or the emotional investment that you're putting into it. But there's a difference between someone who treats you badly and someone who's just being human with their human emotions. Whether their anger or upset is justified in your eyes or not, I can bet it feels justified in their eyes, even if just in that moment of anger. 
When we're emotional, our prefrontal cortex goes offline. You know, the part of your brain in charge of logic and reason. So when we get upset, it doesn't really matter if someone else tells us a logical reason for why we should not be upset. We still feel it, so we're likely to just double down on those emotions. The more someone tells us that we should feel okay when we're not okay, or that there's nothing to worry about when we're worried, the more riled up we get because it goes against everything we're feeling inside. We might even subconsciously make the emotions bigger to show someone that this is a big deal. Also, most of us aren't taught how to deal with emotions, so we hold them in until we can't anymore, and then we wonder why we feel so out of control. Regardless of why we get upset, it's hard to be your best self all the time. And I think that the best we can do is give each other grace in the times that we're a little off, whether it's someone you love or even yourself. This actually happened to me this morning. I was not my best self. So last night was a rough night with Bravery, my eight-month-old. He woke up almost every hour the whole night, which is not something that I'm used to. So when morning came and I realized that it was actually time to get out of bed already, I knew that it was going to be a rough day. And when I am sleep-deprived, I'm extra emotional. Also, my little dog Maverick is getting old. He'll be 15 in February and he is officially in diapers now. So somehow I have two with diapers and I only have one baby. Well, we usually put his bed in the bathroom to make a cozy little nook for him so that if he does have an accident, it's easy to clean up. Well, I also just got this really cute new bathroom rug and I thought it was obvious that we would hang up the rug at night. Even just telling the story right now feels so stupid, but again, sleep deprivation steals my soul. So I got up in the morning and my poor little dog had had an upset stomach and diarrhea'd all over the new rug. I think it was just all the things combined that led me to be disproportionately upset about the darn rug. Well, of course, my husband Shane is confused because I'm getting upset over something so dumb. And logically, I knew everything that was happening was just trivial, but I also could feel that I needed something and it wasn't just a new rug. Well, I had just recorded this interview a couple days earlier, so I was actually able to use the techniques learned in this to de-escalate my own emotions and talk myself through what was really bothering me, which had nothing to do with the rug, but more so feeling helpless about all the little things going wrong with my first true love, which is my dog. What I find really interesting is that learning to calm someone who is upset uses very similar techniques to calming an upset child. And maybe it's because when we're emotional, it's the inner child that needs tending to. So today we're going to learn how to calm an angry or upset person in 90 seconds or less. And I will tell you, it's not only easy to learn, but so far I've found that it works kind of miraculously. Our guest is Douglas Knoll. He left a successful career as a trial lawyer to become a peacemaker. He's an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and highly experienced mediator. And his work carries him from international work to helping people resolve deep interpersonal conflicts to training life inmates to be peacemakers and mediators in maximum security prisons. Three key things we will learn are why emotional invalidation is the first deadly sin, the secret to de-escalating emotions in just a few minutes, and how to get through to unresponsive people. But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get a little inspiration to set the tone for the day, you know, so you're a little less mad yourself. 
Think of it like a short note from your highest self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Doug Knoll to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Liz. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So what is your story? How did you end up becoming a master de-escalator? Well, I started out as a trial lawyer. And then along the way, I started studying martial arts. And after I got my second degree black belt, my teacher called me in and said, I'm not going to train you anymore. You're too arrogant. You're too much of an asshole. You're going to hurt somebody, including yourself. Go learn Tai Chi. And when you master Tai Chi, come back and I'll keep training you. Well, that was a death sentence because you never master Tai Chi. So, but Tai Chi taught me two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. And this did not compute. Hardcore trial lawyer, secondary black belt, kind of a kind of in those days, kind of an adrenaline junkie, class four water kayaker, ski instructor, all kinds of crazy stuff. But eventually it seeped in until one day in the mid-1990s, I was trying a case and the thought came to me out of the blue, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I had a vacation plan with a bunch of friends to go up and run the main salmon up in central Idaho, big whitewater river. And so I spent 10 days on my raft um, thinking about how many people I'd served as a trial lawyer and concluded at the end of the trip that I really hadn't served that many people after 22 years. And I made the decision, fateful as it turned out, that I just wasn't going to do trial work anymore if I couldn't serve people. So when I came back and was driving to my office out of the mountains in central California, I heard a the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, the West Coast Mennonite University. And I wasn't a Mennonite. I knew about Fresno Pacific, never been there. But I applied and found myself shortly thereafter, a full-time graduate student after mid-career, you know, after three years of law school, 25 years before, and a three-quarters time law professor at our local law school and a full-time trial lawyer. And what I learned from my mentors and teachers just completely changed, radicalized. It radicalized me and changed my life. I began to realize why the law could not serve people in the way that I had thought that it would. And so, I completed my master's studies, and after numerous discussions with my partners in my law firm, and then ultimately an ultimatum was given to me, and I said, basically called the bluff and walked in and said, I quit. And I literally did quit with one week's notice and walked away from $10 million, and that's how my peacemaking and mediation career started back in 2000, and I've never looked back. Best decision I ever made. Wow, that's a lot of money to <laughs> walk away from, but you you are definitely doing people a service and I found this idea for this episode so intriguing because in a way with everything that we've gone through in the last year and a half, it almost seems like we're losing the ability to connect on an emotional level. It's like we've done so much research in the past few decades where you're right, we weren't ever taught to really understand our emotions, to connect with each other on that way. It's, it's like we lived in the logic center or we've been convincing ourselves to live in the logic center of our brain. Even after a lot of the hard things I went through years ago, 
I thought being strong was turning off my emotions and powering right. through it. And so, so much of what I've learned and just my own healing has been to connect with those emotions. And now I'm raising a child. He's, he's eight months old now. And everything I'm learning about understanding how to communicate with him talks about first connecting on that emotional level. So one of the things that you teach are that we are emotional beings. Talk more about that. Well, as you pointed out, Melissa, we've been lied to for 4,000 years by philosophers and theologians and educators. We've been told that what separates humans from other species on the planet is rationality. And it turns out that's absolutely false. What makes us different is emotions. We are, neuroscience now teaches that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And in fact, there's no such thing as rationality. I teach a graduate course at Pepperdine just up the coast from where you live. And I ask my graduate students, define rationality. And of course they can't because there is no definition of rationality. And so it's, a, it's this ephemeral idea developed over thousands of years of philosophy because philosophers and theologians saw emotional people acting badly and people who were calm and collected and could sort of appear to think clearly seemed to be engaging in better behaviors than people who were emotional. And so emotions got a really bad rap just based on observation. But it turns out that we can't be rational unless we're emotional first. And yet our whole educational edifice is based on this myth of rationality over emotions. And it's been the cause of massive abuse uh, of children in particular, and women too, over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, as we have given privilege to this concept that doesn't exist, rationality, over the reality that we are truly emotional beings. And here's the thing that's really cool. Once you get the insight that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational, all of a sudden the clouds lift. It's like somebody lifts the veils because when you look at people and watch how they behave, it makes perfect sense. They're emotional beings. They're acting emotionally. Ah, gee, no surprise there. And all of a sudden, all the stuff that looks like chaos, because we're comparing it to some illusory standard of rationality, goes away. It's not chaotic. It's completely predictable and understandable and powerful. And in my so, line of work as a peacemaker, you know, obviously, that's a pretty important insight to have. For sure. And in your line of work, it's very obvious why we it's helpful to develop emotional intelligence. But I think so many people, especially now that we're disconnected from each other and we've been, you know, keyboard warriors on the other <laughs> side of our screens with all these right. polarizing views, like I said, it seemed like we were making progress and then all of a sudden it feels like to me in the last 18 months that so much of that progress has been ripped away because we're not connecting with each other and seeing feeling empathy in the ways that we were when we were meeting in person and I know that in some areas the world's getting back to normal in LA I beg to differ but <laughs> so what is the cost of emotional incompetency and if this is your first time giving your mind a little love I have a few goodies for you First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. 
So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. (laughs) What is the cost of emotional incompetency? The cost is... The cost of health, physical health. It's it's the cost of happiness. It's the cost of effectiveness. It's the cost of not being a good leader. It's the cost of intense job dissatisfaction. The Great Resignation is all about emotions and emotional incompetency. I mean, you can't you can't overstate the cost of not being emotionally competent. If we're ninety eight percent emotional and we have no emotional competency, it's like we're leaving ninety eight percent of who we are on the table and not even developing it. People talk about emotional intelligence, but I've done a, a pretty intensive study of who is offering emotional intelligence courses off the internet. There are about 240 different companies that do it. And when you look when you look at those companies, their trainers have no credentials. They don't even define what emotion is. They don't even get into the neuroscience of it. None of them do. And it's all hookum. You know, it's snake oil they're selling. So, and to me, this is a serious problem. And to your point, the pandemic, coupled with political polarization, have driven people apart. And what little skill we had to communicate emotionally before the pandemic is now gone. I kind of think it's also generational. The uh, millennials and the generations behind them that grew up on mobile devices are now prone to use their mobile devices to communicate because they don't have to confront the messiness of emotion. They, all they have to do is text message. And you know, I think that does not bode well for us as a society going into the future. I know. It's like if your emotional expression consists of just emojis, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, probably doing it wrong. Exactly correct. And, you know, the people that are going to get ahead in the world in the 21st century are the people that are going to listen to this message and recognize, uh, you know, my education has not prepared me for modern life. My education has not prepared me to lead. My education has not prepared me for professional success, despite the knowledge I have. What's going to prepare me for professional and career success is learning how to manage my emotions and to manage the emotions of those around me. And those few people that take the time to learn how to do that are going to be in high demand and command high salaries from employers because they're going to become the leaders. So you said earlier that there is no logic without emotions. So what role do emotions play in rational decision making? So emotions are cognitive constructs. We're not born with emotions. We create emotions at around, starting at around 18 months of age. We create them in our brains. We're born with what's known as affect. And we take this affective experience and we, 
label it and categorize it, and that's what we call emotions. What emotions help us do is concretize into our consciousness what we're feeling in the moment, feelings of pleasantness and feelings of unpleasantness. And we can't even begin to bring rational thinking to bear on a problem or a situation until we have some experience, emotional experience, that tells us that we have a problem out there to solve. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have any guidepost to tell us, oh, I've got to pay attention to this and not pay attention to that. Emotions are what make us pay attention to our environment. And when we are confronted with a problem, it's an emotion that tells us we've got a problem. If you didn't have emotion, you wouldn't even know that there's a problem out there. So how would you even know how to bring rationality to bear if you didn't see the problem in the first place, or you didn't experience the problem biophysiologically? So emotions precede all decision-making processes. And then if you get down into the weeds and the neuroscience, interestingly enough, decisions are, tend to be at a final level or binary. It's either yes or no. And so what, what are we deciding? We're deciding, well, would this decision make me feel more pleasant or less pleasant? Or what is the least unpleasant experience I'll have making this decision? So all the value judgments that we make are based upon, does this make me feel good or less good? How am I going to feel about this? What's going to happen in my body? How much dopamine am I going to miss or get squirted into my brain to make me feel happy? And it all comes down to neurotransmitters and these binary calculations, all emotional, based on feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness. So all decision-making is based on emotion, not based on higher abstract thinking like ancient philosophers thought and taught through the centuries. In your book, you explain that two parts to emotions, and you mentioned affect and right. feeling. So what, what is the difference between those two? Yeah, since I wrote the book, I've gotten more educated. So let me explain it this way. Part of our body that we call the brain, it sits in our skulls, is constantly monitoring our whole physical body and monitoring the outside environment. And this is a process known as interoception. So, for example, we might have get cold. We might get goosebumps, for example, for, for some reason or another. The brain all of a sudden senses the physical sensation of goosebumps. That may trigger an affect in the brain. And I follow the nine-affect model of a guy by the name of Sylvan Tompkins. So that might trigger trigger an affect. So now we're having a physical feeling triggering a brain physiological reaction caused caused by an affect, and then we have an emotion that we call that affect or whatever it is has a name and that name is what we call an emotion because we, we categorize the affective experience into a word in English. And so, so the difference between a feeling, affect and emotion is the feeling is the physical sensation we have. Affect is what happens in our brains and emotion is how we consciously categorize the whole experience using a word in English, for example, that describes that sort of experience. And what that also tells us is that emotions vary across culture. There are words in Finnish, for example, in, the fin in Finland that do not exist in English. There are words of emotion in the Czech Republic that do not exist in English. There are words in all of the thousands of Asian cultures that do not exist in English. If you want to define culture, define it by emotions. Emotions are defined by culture and culture defines emotions. And language is defined by emotions. I read something years ago that really stuck with me, and I've mentioned it on a few different episodes, but I read that people that have 
lower education or less vocabulary, I should say, they have a shorter range of emotions because if they don't have a word for the emotion, they'll default to the emotion they do know. So for example, if they only know things like mad, sad, whatever, then they're going to default to being mad versus something more nuanced like contemplative or whatever it is. So you know about that. Oh, yes. This is part of the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett out of Northeastern University. Brilliant neuroscientist, extremely influential on my thinking. And what you're really talking about is the concept of emotional categorization and then emotional granularization. People with small emotional vocabularies, they tend to go into a condition known as alexithemia, which is not being able to recognize or name their own emotional experience. And all studies show that people who tend to be alexithemic have lots of problems in relationships. They have low empathy. They're highly reactive. They don't think well. They don't make good decisions. They are not empathic. I mean, they don't have empathy. Lots and lots of problems. And it's there's a correlation with educational level because the, the more words you have that can describe these nuanced physical states that you experience, the more emotionally complex you are the more emotionally granular you are, and the less you are likely to fall into alexithemia. And every time you see a conflict, people are arguing, they're alexithemic. They've lost the the ability to name their own emotional experience. And so they cycle into conflict and, in some cases, violence. Because once you cycle into this condition, your prefrontal cortex is overwhelmed and your executive function goes away. You have no impulse control. It's a real argument for funding that part of education in the formal education system that that speaks to this, which is literature, art, drama, poetry, visual arts, musical arts, all of this stuff. All of those things that are the first things to be cut and what most people poo-poo is not being STEM education is actually the most important education you can give a child because it helps them develop the emotional competency in their brains. And if you don't give that to them, then then it doesn't matter how much STEM education you give them. They can't make good decisions. They can't think clearly because they haven't mastered their emotions. And they're going to be horrible at relationship. I remember thinking after learning that research, I'm like, thank God that I have the understanding of what melancholy is or else I would have slipped into a deep depression a long time ago. That's right. <laughs> because, well, it, and it's, we, right. I've also learned that an emotion only lasts for about 90 seconds unless you feed it somehow. That's and right. so this is going into so much of your research because in my case, I understand that I feel melancholy. So I'm like, okay, this is, going to pass. It's not over anything in particular versus if I didn't have that, I might be like, God, I feel down. Man, why do I feel depressed? Well, because everything's terrible. And then all of a sudden I'm feeding this story that's adding to my depression. Well, what we're talking about today is understanding how to de-escalate somebody else. And so we're given a rare opportunity with whether it's in an extreme situation like you've been in or maybe just an argument with your partner where we can help each other. I, I look at my husband as a teammate. We, we help each other to move through things. So I'm not reliant on him to change my mood, but I'm very thankful for him when he asks a question or he says something in a way that, that does deescalate me. So first of all, these things come back to emotional validation, whereas even your vocabulary, understanding there's a word for it can validate your own emotions. So what are the dangers of emotional invalidation and why do you call it the first deadly sin? Well, do you remember when you were two years old or three and you were running around outside and you fell over and you skinned your knee and you started to cry? Did that ever happen to you? Yes. (laughs) And what were you told by the adults? 
you're okay. <laughs> exactly. You're okay. Stop crying. Don't be a sissy. Pull up your big girl panties. Big girls don't cry. It doesn't hurt. And so on and so forth, right? Yeah. What are you being told as a two or three-year-old, as a toddler? You're being told that emotions are bad, that you're having bad feelings is bad, that you are being weak and less than by having emotions, that you shouldn't experience emotions that you're having. In other words, you're being denied your own reality. Well, it turns out this is the most insidious and pervasive form of childhood abuse that exists, and it's everywhere. There is a study out of San Diego called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that shows that when children have three or more adverse childhood experiences, which includes this kind of emotional abuse, they are 100 times more likely to die later in life of cancer, of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, and the list of, of morbid diseases goes on and on and on. They're more likely to be smokers. They're more likely to be drug addicted. They're more likely to go to prison. They're more likely to have divorce, all resulting from emotional invalidation. And yet parents do it because they don't know any better what was done to them, and they justify it like, I got to toughen you up. No, you're weakening your child when you emotionally invalidate your child. You're making them weak. They, they do not have any emotional resiliency. And so you keep emotionally invalidating and emotionally invalidating. And now 15, 16 years old, you get interested in guys. Guys get interested in you. And you're going to watch the relationship train wrecks all over the place. Because no, the children that are now teenagers have no experience in managing the more complex emotions that they start to experience in, in adolescence to prepare them for adulthood. And they carry all of this into their adult relationships, which is why so many people are unhappy in their relationships because they are emotionally stuck at four or five or six years old because they were emotionally invalidated. And it's the first deadly sin. I, I work in maximum, one of the things I do is work in maximum security prisons, training lifers and long-termers how to be peacemakers. And every single one of those people was emotionally abused, horribly emotionally abused. And I've come to the belief that if we could teach parents to emotionally validate their children by listening to and reflecting their emotions rather than emotionally invalidating, which is self-soothing to the parent, makes the parent feel better, but doesn't help the child, we could probably close 80% of our prisons in 20 years, just but with that one shift. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. 
Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When we're in the moment, how do we get there? Because first of all, with children, I I do know so many people are trained on raising children in a way where it's like, well, their reaction will be your reaction. And so parents think, well, if I just shut off all my emotions and tell them they're okay, then they won't cry. But children especially, we are then viewing as irrational. Maybe it's easier to connect with them because we do see them as irrational and, you know, they might be crying because they broke their toy or whatever it is. And it doesn't wrap us in or suck us in emotionally. But when we're in a conversation with like a partner and say my husband's upset and he says something and he's emotional. So then whatever he says is hurtful to me, then all of a sudden I'm triggered and we both need (laughs) de-escalating. So how in that moment... Well, you have just described the human existence in less than a paragraph. Congratulations, Melissa. Great job. <laughs> let's talk. Let's let's start with the children and then move to adults. So, children are not irrational because there's no such thing as rationality. How can they be irrational? And why do we expect a three-year-old to be a rational being? Mm. Why do we even expect that? They're children. Their their emotional brains are just starting to form. Their emotional centers of their brain and the limbic system don't even begin to mature until 24 to 36 months. And so to expect a two-year-old or a three-year-old to be a rational being is insane and, of course, very abusive. So what do you do with that child? You simply listen to the emotional experience that the child is having and you tell them what they're feeling. So, oh, Joni, you're really upset. You're really hurt. You're really sad and you're frustrated. And you're not getting what you want because you don't feel like anybody's listening to you. You're being completely ignored. And that really makes you mad and you're tired and you just want it all to go away. That's all you have to say. And that two-year-old temper tantrum is over with, literally over with. 
in 30 seconds. I cannot tell you how many parents I've taught these skills who write back and report to me that within three months of learning these skills with their two and three-year-olds, all tantrums go away forever. And what's even more significant is that the studies show that when parents reflect back their children's emotions on a consistent basis verbally, by ages eight, nine, ten years old, those children are three grade levels ahead of their peers academically. That's how powerful this stuff is. So that's why we do that. that you've got an eight-month-old, great. In another four months, you're going to have a little walker, right, toddling around. And in about, 18, in about 10 months, so probably by next midsummer, you're going to, your child's going to start verbalizing. That's when, that's when your child is going to start learning how to create emotions, verbalizing emotions. And, that's, and you should be affect labeling or labeling your child's emotional experiences as you see them, even right now. So and some, at some level, even though your child is not verbal, um, the brain, that little child's brain is just working overtime to figure out, to make meaning out of everything. And if you say, oh, you're really tired or you're really frustrated, you're really sad, you're upset, or you, you're not comfortable right now, just telling the child what he or she is feeling pre-verbally sets the stage for developing early emotional competence. And, and that's what parents should be doing. And you, you've got a great situation with an eight-month-old to be able to start doing that. Even though the child won't understand what you're saying, the brain is going to be start making a connection. So that repeated, consistent labeling of the experience that the child is having helps that child's brain develop rapidly. And you will have an emotionally very mature four-year-old at four years old. Take, you know, take some work to get there, but you will, you will not believe the difference between your child and other people's children. And your child will be secure, attached, and remarkably able to deal with those social situations from four on up from there, if you start right now with just labeling it her emotions. Now, let's take the situation with your partner. Your partner is tired or something goes off, and, and he says something that's mean or hurtful to you, which would normally trigger you. And so, how do you stop that cycle? Well, three, you, 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 it's a three-step process. The first thing you're going to do is... Your, your partner, your husband says something to you that is hurtful. He doesn't mean to be hurtful, but he's just in a bad place himself, anxious, tired, whatever it might be. You ignore his words. You ignore, you always ignore the anger person's words. Always ignore them. You don't need to listen to the words. The words are meaningless right now. So just ignore everything. Because when you ignore the words, one, you're not going to get triggered because you don't hear them. And two, you're going to free up bandwidth in your brain for doing the rest of the steps. So just ignore the angry words. They have no meaning. It's just white noise. Second step, read his emotions. You're, you are far better at this than you can possibly believe. This is, we have developed this innate ability through millions of years of evolution, and it's because of the myth of rationality that we don't use it. But every human has the innate ability to read the emotions of another human accurately, efficiently, and easily, effortlessly, and very, very quickly. So you'll read his emotions. And maybe, maybe because you haven't done this before, the first couple of times, the only thing you're going to see is anger. But as you start to really pay attention, you'll see that there are a lot more emotions underneath the anger. And so you'll start those emotions, you'll start to read those emotions like you read a book. There'll just be data out there. It'll just be so obvious what he's experiencing. And then the third step is to simply tell him what he's feeling. Reflect back his emotions with a simple use statement. So what's his name? Shane. Shane? Yes. Okay, so you say something like, Shane, oh, Shane, you're really pissed off. You're really angry. You're really frustrated. Nobody's listening to you. You feel completely unsupported, and you're anxious and worried and confused. 
and you feel a little bit betrayed and you feel like you're being treated unfairly and it's making you sad because you really want and need the support and you feel completely abandoned and right now you feel completely unloved and the whole thing is just really, really making you angry. Notice how, how many emotions did I label there? Probably oh. a half dozen. Yeah. Yeah. He will quiet down instantly and he'll say, yeah. And then once he gets used to it, he knows you're do- what you're doing. He'll say, thank you. I feel much better. And it, it all goes away that fast. And you don't feel anything. You don't, you're not reactive at all to his words. And that's all, that's all you have to do. Isn't that remarkable? It is remarkable. And I can see different areas of things I've learned coming together in your research and your skills. And two of those, well, one of them is I've told you how I've been reading a lot of books about raising children. And so there's books Mm -hmm. like How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, The Self-Driven Child. They mention the things that you mention, only you give it more of a reason as to why. (laughs) You know, like, why does this work? And with my husband, one of the things I've been proud of is we've always given each other grace. Well, not always, but uh, after about a year of our relationship, we've, we started to, we're both the type of people that will learn about how to resolve conflict and really make an effort. We don't, we try not to be stuck in our ways. And one of the things I was proud of that we've done is that we give each other grace in a heated moment. And we understand that what comes out of each other's mouth when one of us is frustrated isn't personal. And we do our best to let that go. But what I'm learning more from this interview and from your book is not because it's it's difficult. It almost takes willpower to let that go. But to tune it out from the beginning is right. like the part where I'm like, oh, this is the key that I need because it is hard. When you are still paying attention to the words, it's easy to get caught up in the, well, I was the bigger person and you did say hurtful things still type thing. Even if right. you, you think you're letting them go, they will come Field up tripping. in a weak yeah. moment, you know? And know. so the, the allowing it to just pass and, and giving me something else to focus on, like, okay, well, what are the other more nuanced emotions under this that I can then focus on? And what I see it doing is it gives him an outlet because when you're in a heated, when you're in a heated moment or you're emotional, your prefrontal cortex is offline. So you're not going to go into the logic center much anyway. So you might not even realize the things that you're saying are hurtful. But when somebody says something back to you and and accurately describes what they see and they're seeing parts of it that you might not even see yourself, that's what almost helps. I picture it as draining the emotion. That's a good way of describing it. And that's exactly what the brain scanning studies that are the science behind all of this over at UCLA that that Matthew Lieberman found uh, back in 2007. And draining is not exactly a technical word, but we can call it inhibiting the emotions. So what he found was that when people have an emotional experience and they are affect labeled, in other words, their emotional experience is labeled, they either label themselves or somebody labels for them, the emotional centers of the brain become inhibited and that simultaneously, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, the executive function of the brain, becomes activated. And they're in a negative correlation to each other. So as the prefrontal cortex comes online, the emotional centers of the brain go, goes offline. And people calm down in 30 to 45 seconds. And, that's, and that, it, it, that's how we're hardwired. That's how our brains are literally hardwired. But this is also counterintuitive because, number one, as children, we're taught that emotions are bad because we've been, we're emotionally invalidated. So we don't ever learn to listen to emotions. Number two, we are taught to listen to words. Words have the most importance. And so we learn to ignore 90, the other 94% of the data, 93% of the data that's out there. You know, all human communication, only the words only consist of 7% of the total information being conveyed in a human communication. 93% is all nonverbal. 
we're taught to ignore all that. We pick it up a little bit implicitly, but but we're never consciously taught as a skill, pay attention to what's going on here and learn how to label that nonverbal stuff. And and then we're taught these conversational norms that work well in childhood to teach children some discipline and socialize them, but in adulthood are totally counterproductive. I mean, somebody should really sit down with 12-year-olds and say, okay, all this stuff you learned in childhood, yeah, that was good, but let's, let's talk about how the world really works. <laughs> and so some of those childhood rules need to be modified a little bit. That would be a really good talk to have with 12-year-olds along with the birds and the bees, but nobody ever does it because they don't know. So how is affect labeling different than reflective listening? It's reflective listening is a less technical word for the same thing. And, and reflective listening also, in, there are four levels of reflective listening, of which the deepest level is affect labeling. So in reflective listening, we have mirroring, where you repeat back what somebody says word for word. And you only use mirroring when you're, the, the speaker and the listener have to be on the same page about a recipe or instructions or a list or a task, where you just need to make sure that everybody understands what's going on. That's when we use mirroring. Then you paraphrasing, which most people know how to do. You just you basically restate the other person's words with your own words. But again, the focus is on the words. The third level is core messaging, where we are searching for the meaning that the speaker is trying to convey and then summarize the meeting. And, and you would use this with that person that you love to be around that talks and 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 never seems to be able to get to the point of what they're trying to say. And so you use core messaging with that person to help them find the meaning that they're searching for as they talk through it out loud. And then finally, you have affect labeling. And in affect labeling, you ignore the words completely. You read the emotional data fields and you reflect back the emotions with a simple use statement. And that's the deepest level of reflective listening. And that's where we do all the de-escalation work and listening other people into existence and validating is done at that level of reflective listening. So think of reflective listening as four different levels with affect labeling, the re reflecting emotions being at the deepest level. So once you've used these skills and you've successfully de-escalated somebody, then what? Because I picture that gif of Homer Simpson backing away slowly until he disappears into a bush. <laughs> but I'm assuming abandoning the person you just de-escalated is not the right thing to do. But what do you do right. then? Well, you'll find as you work with this that 90% of the time the problem solves itself and you don't have to do anything. It's really quite remarkable. Once people are calmed down, they can often solve their own problems, and they don't need any intervention from you at all. But if there still is a problem of some kind, then you have a whole continuum of problem-solving skills. You can have, just have a conversation about it, talk it out. You can negotiate if you have to, interest-based or distributive negotiation techniques. You can bring in a mediator if you need to do that, a third person to help you work through more difficult problems. You know, if, you, if, if it's really bad, you know, depending upon the kind of situation, is you can have, it, have somebody come in as a third party and make a decision about who's right and who's wrong. And that's what the judicial system does or, the, or private arbitration does. So there's just a whole, whole bunch of different ways you can engage in problem solving and decision making skills. But you only do that once people are calmed down. As I, I teach my, all my students, I say de-escalate before you problem solve. Never, ever try to problem solve with an angry, upset person. It'll just make them angrier. You've got to calm them down first. Once they're calmed down, then you can, if problem solving is appropriate, you can sit down and figure out what kind of problem solving is going to be appropriate. And it works. And it's effective. And then be prepared to re-de-escalate because oftentimes in problem solving, people will get triggered again and you just Start the process over and go back and calm them down and keep moving forward. 
So say you're, you've de-escalated or you're in the middle of de-escalating somebody. You haven't quite gotten there yet, but you do feel yourself being triggered. Maybe they are being especially vocal about insults or saying disrespectful things. How do you de-escalate yourself in that situation so that you can resume your de-escalating activities? You just simply affect label yourself. So I'm really pissed off right now. I feel very disrespected. I'm not being listened to. Uh, I feel like I'm being treated unfairly and I'm not being supported and it's making me a little anxious and I'm a little confused and I'm sad because I'm losing a connection here that I want. Okay, that's it. It's the fear of loss of connection. Okay, I'm good. All right. How long? That took me less than 30 seconds and all of a sudden I calm myself down. So, so that's called self, that's self-affect labeling and it's just as powerful as third-party affect labeling. That is really helpful. I, I have been tuning into my own emotions. It's funny because... I find that the more that I do this practice, it's been really helpful for me over the last few years of just, you know, trying to label my own emotions. And it's the longer I do it, it does seem like the more complex (laughs) that I feel like I am, the easier it is to have compassion for myself because I'm starting to see the triggers and, and how and why. Yes, that's exactly right. The more you practice this, the more emotionally competent you become and the more you understand what emotions are and the emotional experiences that you have and other people have. And it gives you space for compassion. It becomes a spiritual practice because when you're affect labeling somebody, you're listening to and reflecting their emotions. You don't have any room for your own ego and it goes away. You become egoless. You become one. It's what Eckhart Tolle Tolle calls the, the, the presence of now or the power of now. You're in the presence of now. And there's not a past, there's not a future, there's just right now. And you're in that moment for about 20 seconds or 30 seconds with the person who's really upset. And it's it's transcendence feeling of oneness. And that's where your real compassion starts to come through. It's very powerful. And we're all hardwired for this. There's nobody on the planet that can't do this. Every human brain is capable of doing it. Even, Even the brains of murderers. I've trained hundreds of murderers to do this. And they become very powerful peacemakers. And many of them well, actually, the number is, I think, over, uh, over, over a thousand of our prison of peace inmates have been released. Not one reported recidivism. Not one person has reoffended. Wow. That's gone through our program. That's incredible. That's how powerful this is. What happens if somebody is fairly unresponsive? Like the people who tend to shut down when they feel emotions, or especially like teenagers tend to do that. How yeah. do you do that with them? So understand, this is going to introduce another concept called emotional safety. The reason that teenagers shut down is because they are not emotionally safe. They don't feel emotionally safe. The safest place for them to be is inside with big walls around them that nobody can penetrate. Because they've been emotionally invalidated all their lives. Now they're in puberty. They're going through all the, they're, they're sexually maturing, which creates you know, all the hormonal stuff that we're all familiar with. It's a pretty awful time in life. And, and coupled with that is the fact that they haven't been trained in emotional competency. They've been emotionally invalidated. And the only safe place for them to be is inside themselves. And that's why you see the sullen teenager. They're, and you just recognize they're emotional beings, not rational beings because they're human. And two, they are not experiencing emotional safety. So what I, when I teach middle school students and high school students these skills for classroom de-escalation, classroom control, I say... The way you know it's working is because that teenager does not walk away from you. You're sitting there and just labeling the child's emotions, the young person's emotions. And you're basically guessing, but the guess is almost always right, because they're always the same emotions. 
as long as that child stands there, even if they're looking down and they're looking sullen and they're grunting and not giving you any, any contact, you are, you are connecting with them. So just keep doing it. And if you do it over a period of time, eventually that young person will feel emotionally safe with you and start to talk to you. They'll start to open up a dialogue. But they're not going to do it until they feel absolutely emotionally safe. And the only way they're going to feel emotionally safe is if they feel deeply hurt and validated by you over a period of time, that you've been consistently safe with them. And then they'll open up. Parents with teenagers have repeated this, reported this experience over and over and over again. Same thing. It's all about creating emotional safety. And it's a lot easier when you start off at, with an eight-month-old. If you've given that consistent emotional safety over 16 years of life, that 16-year-old is going to feel very emotionally safe and tend to be very open and not nearly as sullen. But sullen children are children who've been abused. They've been emotionally invalidated all their lives. And, of course, they're going to shut down. Now, for adults who are either emotionally defensive or emotionally unavailable, it's the same thing. They haven't experienced emotional safety. They just hide the fear and the vulnerability that they don't want to show and and their intense desire for connection that they're afraid to show because they're afraid of being exploited. They just have a little bit more sophisticated way of of hiding it. But create the safety. Create emotional safety by simply reflecting back with their emotional experiences. And... Over a period of time, very short period of time, really just a matter of days, they'll start to feel emotionally safe and start to open up with you. One of the funny stories is when I tell my Pepperdine grads, my female young women students, when we're going learning this stuff, I'm teaching them this stuff. It's tip- I go down, I live up by Yosemite, so I'm four hours north of you. And I come down to Malibu to teach, and so they're intensives. I don't, you know, we, we do the class in a week or so. And so usually on a Friday night, I'm teaching this stuff. And I, I tell everybody, now, I know you're all going to go out and hit the clubs tonight. If you want to experiment, that's great. But ladies, be very careful. If you start af- labeling some cute guy, he's going to glom onto you. And it's going to take a probar to get rid of him. <laughs> because he has never felt so deeply listened to before in his life. He's going to fall instantly in love with you. So just understand there's a risk here. And sure enough, the next morning, they come in and they're all hungover and the stories start to flow. And it's just absolutely hysterical to hear how they didn't believe me and they tried affect labeling. And it's just what I predicted happened. The guy's never felt so listened to before in his life from this good looking graduate woman. And, you know, he's instantly in love (laughs) and they can't get rid of him. I mean, (laughs) it's really powerful. It builds instant intimacy. Man, where was this information in my dating days? (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Well, this is so helpful. And it was like a key, another, the last facet to all this information that I've been learning over the years. So thank you so much for the work you're doing here. I feel like it is extra needed just in this time that we're living in and how everyone's forgetting what empathy feels like. So for listeners who are interested in learning more about you and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? I have created a webpage on my website for everybody, only for people who are listening to this podcast, this edition. And the, the URL is dougnoll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot C-O dot Mind love, one word, mind love. Dugnall.co slash mind love. And if you go to that page, you'll see the thing, welcome mind love podcast listeners. And then underneath that, as you scroll down the page, there are four resources. One, a free ebook that describes everything that we've talked about today in some detail. Two, a link to buy my book, my fourth book, Deescalate. If you want to learn how to do these skills, then you can buy my 
online course, Deescalate, how to deescalate. And then if you want to build emotional competency, if you really want to go for it and invest in yourself, you can buy my basic and advanced emotional competency courses and, you know, and get some coaching from me on how to do this stuff all at dougnoll.co slash mindlove. And my regular website is dougnoll.com. So CO gets you to the special page. Com gets you to the homepage of the website. And you can email, anybody can email me at doug, D-O-U-G, at dougnoll.com. I answer all my own emails. I'm a solo guy, no assistance, virtual or otherwise. What you hear is what you get. So, and I, so I always welcome emails from your listeners. All of the links to this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 212. So your challenge for this week is to try the techniques that we learned. So I want you to focus on the emotions of people that you're talking to as often as possible, even when they're not upset. See if you can tune this side of yourself. Well, if you happen to get in an argument this week, which I honestly hope you don't, but now can't it be a little exciting just in case you do? (laughs) Yeah, all week I've been like, can I trigger someone so I can use this stuff? No, not really. But anyways, like I said, even with the smallest things, if you're in a relationship, these little things probably bubble up all the time. You know, like someone uses the last of the oat milk or your partner feels like they're doing more around the house than you are. See how easy it is to actually just connect with the emotions and start training yourself to tune out the words, especially if you have a volatile person that you're doing this with or someone who maybe gets a little bit snappier than you'd like. So connect with the emotions and practice that reflective listening or the affect labeling as we call it. So take note of the emotions and say them back while voicing the person's concerns. This can be a child, this can be a partner, it can be a boss, whatever. And notice how fast this works. Man, just the other day I was doing this with my husband and it was funny. He was feeling underappreciated in a moment and rightly so. I think I was underappreciating him in that moment, but I immediately caught it because I was sensing his emotions. And instead I I said to him, I can tell you feel underappreciated. You've been doing all of this around the house. I am going to spend today making you feel as appreciated as possible. And in that moment, it was like we were closer than we were before. It was amazing. And so All of these things can be so useful, whether it's a big argument, a little argument, or you're dealing with somebody in a maximum security prison. So let me know how it goes and reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, please share it, take a screenshot and share it on Instagram and tag mindlovemelissa and mindlovepodcast, or just send it straight to a friend who might need it. Other ways to support the show are by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium or right there in the Apple Podcasts app. You can also purchase from one of my amazing sponsors who I absolutely love them all. Honestly, I now even purchase from all my past sponsors because I love them all so much, it's gonna break the bank. But they're great, I highly recommend them all. And finally, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and you might just hear your review read on the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.